All right, well, if you have your Bibles, open to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm very excited to get into this topic. Uh, While I was praying, I mentioned this is a difficult passage, and I stand by that. But it's a very exciting passage as well, because if what I present to you is true, and I think there's a very strong argument for it, this is the strongest passage about a pre-tribulational rapture uh, in the entire Bible. And so uh, with that, I want to start by reading it in its entirety. But first of all, we're going to cover verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2, and this is Paul reviews eschatology. Now, why would I say review? We haven't covered any eschatology. Well, he's writing to the Thessalonians, and for them, it is a review. Now, this is an important detail because Paul is going to give summary or highlights of eschatology because he's already taught them. So we need to be mindful of that as we go through this passage. He's not going to go into extensive detail rehashing these things. He's just simply sharing the highlights. So starting in verse 1, he says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the departure comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you, may, you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming." The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, and that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, this is going to be at least a two-parter. And I'm going to cover the details of everything starting next time, depending on where we get today. But today I want to focus on verses 1 through 3 in particular. So verses 1 through 3, starting in verse 1, it deals with the second coming. The second coming of Christ. The first coming is when he was born uh, and grew up and then ultimately died for our sins on the cross. The second coming is when he comes and establishes his kingdom. And so verse 2, we see it's concerning the second coming when it says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him. So first of all, observation, now, brethren. What does brethren imply? They're believers, right? Whatever Paul is, these Thessalonians are. Is Paul a believer? I hope so. (laughs) And yes, he is. And so he is talking to fellow believers, and he says, Now, brothers, this must be clear in our minds as we move forward. 
The second part of verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Note the two distinct events. What are the two distinct events at the end of verse 1? Okay, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Now, theologically speaking, if you hold to the pre-tribulational rapture, you view those as distinct events, right? The pre-tribulational rapture happens seven years prior to the second coming of Christ. And so theologically, that is how you would take it. But um, there appears to be a distinction, even apart from the theological aspect, just looking at the text, he seems to be drawing a distinction between the coming of Christ and the gathering together to him. The end of verse 1, he says, we ask you. Now, who's we? Who's we? Paul, right? Timothy. Timothy. And Silas, or his Greek name, Silvanus, or Silvanus. And so he, these three, at chapter 1, verse 1, are mentioned. They're the... the writers, if you will, or the company that the Thessalonians were familiar with. Now it says, we ask you, uh, ask you is simply to make a request concerning something. So there's something on Paul's mind and he's wanting to make a request. He's asking them a certain thing. We see that in verse two, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. Now the idea soon, so when he says soon shaken, Probably implies easy, although quickly isn't out of the question. So that word can be taken in either sense as far as easy or or simple or quickly, rapidly. Now, I think both are essentially true with Paul's sentiments, but I think easy seems to be on his mind because he just taught them and they're already being led astray by this false teaching. Now, I've mentioned this false teaching is explicitly that the day of the Lord was upon them. The tribulation has begun and they are in it. And Paul says, no, guys, (laughs) remember what I taught you. We will not be on the earth during the tribulation. So not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. Now the word shaken comes from the Greek word saluthenai. Saluthenai. There we go. Um, used in the New Testament as a result of an earthquake. So this word is used when an earthquake took place and it says everything was shaken. That's the idea. And so it's almost like Paul is speaking of a spiritual earthquake that these, or a mental earthquake that these believers were experiencing because of this false teaching that they were in the tribulation. And he specifies this. Soon shaken in mind or troubled. This is addressing a false teaching that is shaking up and destroying these believers and their hope. So any comments or question at this point? Yeah. So are you saying you don't see what's being described as our gathering together with him when we go in the rapture? No, I, I think it is. And we'll get to that. Um, um, go ahead. I should let you go. Ahead. Okay. Yeah, so I, I would view them as distinct events. One, gathering together to him, rapture, second, or his coming, the second coming, is how I would see that. Not his coming for his saints here? Well, and that's how I would divide it up theologically, is he comes for his saints, and then he comes after the tribulation with his saints. And right. so I think Paul, in a highlight fashion, 
is reminding them of that, that teaching, saying, he'll come for us, he'll rapture us, and then at the end of the tribulation, he'll return and execute his wrath and establish his kingdom. Is that... the, the gathering you don't see here, meaning the same time, the rapture, that he comes for his... So the gathering together to him, I see as the rapture, right. and then the coming, a separate event, oh. if that makes sense. So I do see it as a rapture, not the same event. Okay. Were you... Well, I was going to comment on day of Christ, but you haven't got that. Okay, <laughs> yes. So he asks the, the Thessalonian church not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, and then he specifies in what ways they might be shaken and he says either by spirit word or letter so not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us so false teachers were using the credentials of paul and his ministry team to teach foreign things namely that the day of the lord was happening and so um End of verse 2, as though the day of Christ had come. Now, the day of Christ, I interpret that as that is the day, the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's the day Christ returns. In our Wednesday series, we looked at the day of the Lord and how the day of the Lord can be used in a couple different senses. It could be day taken as far as a, a period of time, namely seven years. Uh, or I think it could be taken as... Uh, an extended period of time, a thousand and seven years. So that's the tribulation plus the millennial kingdom is the day of Christ or the day of the Lord. But then there also is the sense of that literal 24-hour day in which is the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's when Christ returns and finalizes his wrath being poured out and establishes his kingdom. There's a textual variant here. Okay. This says day of Christ. <coughs> Us, us, uh, UBS and Nestle Allen has Lord. But if you go with this, the day of Christ throughout the New Testament is a reference to the Venusy. Okay. And so, if, if, if it's a Venusy, then these guys think that the rewards have been gone and they've been left out. So when's Bemacy? That's during that seven-day period. I... And you, don't, you don't have to comment, because I sure. know a lot of comments <laughs> right off it. Sure. But, but I think that, personally, I think it's reference to Bemacy. Sure. And so that's a possibility. I, I think contextually this is the day of the Lord, and so they're concerned that that day has come upon them, and they're now going to have to suffer. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually the reading of the New American Standard. Day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because they probably... They, sure. Yeah, so wrong. it gets into the, the textual variant, and we won't get into that now, but that explains why there's you might come across various views. <laughs> but they're concerned that the day of the Lord has come, and they're still alive, they're still on the earth, and so if the day of the Lord has come, well, now they're going to have to suffer through all of the things that they happen to remember Paul teaching on, the great suffering that's going to happen during the tribulation. And so they're worried, and rightfully so. Wouldn't that shake you in mind and trouble you if you woke up and you thought that you're in the day of the Lord? 
especially if you're a student of eschatology and you know what's coming, it'd be terrifying. Because even though, if you're familiar with those passages, God will protect believers during the tribulation, but you still have to be there. You might have loved ones that are lost, and, and you'd be there to experience all of that. And so this is a serious issue. So that's the second coming. Verses 1 and 2 establish that. But look at verse 3a. He says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless. And then we'll stop there, because that kind of closes the, the summary there. He's, he's comforting them that that day won't come until or unless certain other things happen. And we'll get into the sequence uh, more in detail to come, but today I want to focus on the rest of verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now we'll leave the second part of verse 3 for next week, but the falling away. Now, anyone have a different translation? Apostasy. Rebellion against God. <laughs> wow. Leaving no room for us to interpret. Okay. So apostasy, great rebellion against God. Now those are taken as a spiritual departure, right? Now I want to break down to you that, first of all, uh, for um, the departure comes first. Falling away is a Greek word, apostasia. Now, uh-oh, that sounds awfully close to apostasy. It must be apostasy, right? It is where we get the word apostasy. But this word is used in a couple different ways in the New Testament. So with that, it's not a technical word. Now, if a word is not a technical word, what does that mean? Okay, it doesn't have the same meaning in any context. It has meaning generally and then... The rest of that meaning is how it's used in context. So I would say that the word simply means departure. And I think that translators, in fact, the original translators from Greek to English, left it as departure. And then as the Bible student, it's up to us to determine, okay, what kind of departure? Is this a physical departure or a spiritual departure? And uh, that way it's left to us. But when translators say falling away or apostasy or the great rebellion against God, it's kind of misleading, right? Because if the word can be taken as a physical departure, what would a physical departure be, by the way? Rapture. We are departing from the world. And so it's kind of a big deal. And so that's something, and I wouldn't be in favor of, unless it was my own personal translation, of someone just saying, unless the rapture happens first. While that's my view, I think it would be important and ethical to leave the basic meaning of that word there and let the context determine for the student. So with that, I want to take you through other uses of... So apostasia is the noun. Now, I don't want to get too grammar with you today, but what is a noun? Person, place, or thing. Now, the verb form of apostasia is aphistemi. Aphistemi. So same root, same root meaning, but one is used as a noun, one is used as a verb. Does that make sense? So 
Um, we'll walk through some of these passages. Now, this word apostasia is only used twice in the New Testament. Here, and then Acts 21.21. So go turn there if you would. And as we go through these passages, ask yourself, is this a physical departure or a spiritual departure? Now, Acts 21.21 says, But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to their cousins. So, so forsake is that Greek word, apostasia. Is that a physical or a spiritual departure? Yeah, so it is a spiritual departure. So that tells us one way that it's used, right? Now, the problem is it's only used twice here and in our passage in 2 Thessalonians. And I remembered what I was trying to share with Dave Wednesday night. Uh, One of my professors, Dr. Andy Woods, he wrote a book, by the way, on this subject. If you want more arguments for his position or my position, Um, he said, if there was another use of apostasia in the New Testament, meaning a physical departure other than 2 Thessalonians 2.3, it would be a slam dunk case. Case closed. But he still thinks that there's a very strong argument based on the verb usage of this root word. And so um, I would tend to agree because, again, it's only used twice. Interestingly, if it stands that 2 Thessalonians is speaking of a physical departure, out of those two uses, you see both ways, right? A spiritual and a physical departure. But we have to be careful just because it's used another way as a spiritual departure there. We can't just ramrod that into our text and say, oh, it's got to be spiritual because look at these other uh, passages. Go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 and verse 37. Speaking of Anna the prophetess, says, And this woman was a widow of about 84 years, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. Now that word depart is that Greek word aphistomy. Now that's the verb form of the noun apostasia. Now, is this a physical or a spiritual departure? Physical. Physical, right? She didn't leave physically the temple. So we have a usage here that means that this root word might have a little bit more flavor than we might think originally. Jump over to chapter 4, verse 13. Uh, Luke four thirteen says, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time physical or spiritual physical right he departed he left physically the location that he was in although was he in spirit or physical body we won't get into that but there is a relocation of him we'll go with that so but do you see how this can be taken as a physical departure not just a spiritual departure how do we know which is which What's the rule? Yes, context, right? Context, context, context. If you ever run into an issue with the Bible, go to that passage and read it in its context. Um, Acts 12. So jump a few chapters ahead. Acts chapter 12, verse 10. 
Can yeah. I just share something? I remember a professor saying it fits right in. I know you'll agree yeah. with it. It's very good. Is to remember, this was one of my favorite professors of my own, that the Bible is inspired in its context just as much as in any other sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, people misuse verses because they're not thinking in those terms. But yeah. The context is inspired. Yeah. Well, and to add to that, we have to, our job as the student is not to determine what does it mean to me, it's what did the author mean to convey. And so with that, we have to consider the context that the author was in, the context that the audience was in, the context of the immediate thing that he's discussing. And so context becomes a crucial thing for us to pay attention because if we go any other way, uh, I learned this from Robert Thomas's book on, on this. It's a phenomenal book. We enthrone the interpreter. Now, if you enthrone the interpreter, what you're doing is say, we have the final say, right? As the interpreter of God's word, do we have the final say? Not at all. We have no say. We have read. <laughs> we have no say. We simply read it. We don't uh, get to determine its meaning. Well, determine its meaning individually to us. So Acts 12.10, And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be. Acts 12.10, yeah. I don't think you're an addict. No, you're not. You're both <laughs> Acts 1. Or Luke 1. Thank you for that. Uh, Acts 12.10. This will make much more sense. When they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from them. Or from him. Physical or spiritual? Physical, right? Departure. Now, do you see how, of course, this is a verb. And so it's giving us the action of the actor. And he physically departed. He verbed. Now, using it as a noun, it's the departure, right? And we'll get to that in a moment. Look at 2 Corinthians 12.8. Second Corinthians 12, 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Now, what is Paul talking about here? Thorn in the flesh. And so when he asks the Lord for it to depart from him, he wants it to leave, right? To go from his location to a different location. Doesn't care where, just not around him. So again, we have a physical departure. First Timothy 4, 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Physical or spiritual? Spiritual, Spiritual, right? Okay, so we're seeing that this word has differing uses. What determines its meaning? Context. And interestingly, the context of this word tells us a departure, a qualifier, 
from the faith. So it tells us, based on the context, what uh, the departure is. And then Hebrews 3.12. Hebrews 3.12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, physical or spiritual. Spiritual. So again, it could be taken either way, context determines. So with that, what about our passage? As we turn back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The note there says turn to chart 1. Now chart 1 is the, the one on the back side of your notes up at the top. I stole this slideshow from Dr. Andy Woods, who stole it from Wayne House, or he stole the information from Wayne House, um, the citation there when the trumpet sounds at the bottom. But notice this, we've got the first English Bible translation, the Wycliffe Bible, 1384, how did it translate apostasia? Departing first, right? Tyndale Bible, 1526, departing first. Coverdale, departing first. Cramer, departing first. Breaches, departing first. Biza, departing first. Geneva, pretty major translation, departing first. Now, what happened in the 1500s? Reformation. The Reformation. Notice, how did the Reims Bible translate apostasia? The Protestant Revolt. Wow, that's an interpretation, right? The Protestant Revolt. And then King James 1611 translates falling away. And it seems like most modern translations after that Protestant revolt translation kind of followed suit and said this is talking about apostasy. Now, my problem with that is could it be talking about apostasy? Yes, based on the other passages, it absolutely can, right? That's within the realm of this word. In fact, the other usage of apostasia in the New Testament talks about that very thing. And so it can, but it's, I think, dishonest from the translators to interpret that, to read that in to the text, because essentially they're messing with God's word, aren't they? They're telling you what God's word is saying. When what if, and we'll just hypothetically, what if God didn't mean apostasy? What if he did mean departure? Now, that's pretty major, right? Because is the rapture doctrine important? For us, every time it's used, do you know what's usually either right before or right after? Righteous living. (laughs) If you know that Christ could return at any moment, doesn't that determine how you live? Yeah. And so I think it's important. Also, look at uh, chart number two. Andy W. A and W's. Andy Woods's ten reasons for seeing uh, this as a physical departure. So now that we've established that this could be taken either way, let's look at the evidence and we will determine a verdict. Number one, there have always been doctrinal departures. If you're a student of church history, has there ever been apostasy in the church? Nearly every age, right? 
And how, how do you measure that, by the way? At what percentage point in the church of apostasy does there have to be for it to qualify as the apostasy? Who knows, right? And so I think that's a valid argument. There's always been apostasy, and so that can't be uh, this meaning here. Or it would be vague and ambiguous, right? What does that mean? The apostasy has to happen first? Number two, 2 Thessalonians was an early letter. I believe it was the third letter that Paul wrote. He wrote Galatians first, 1 Thessalonians, and then 2 Thessalonians. Which is interesting by itself, by the way, because what does he get into in 1 and 2 Thessalonians? Eschatology. Sometimes we shy away from end times prophecy because we think that new believers aren't ready for it. Well, Paul thought they were ready, and not only ready, ready or not, you need to know these things. We need to understand, and with how much confusion there is in eschatology, do you think it's important for us to know what the Bible has to say about this? Number three, the definite article before apostasia. Now, the definite article is the. It's not just a apostasy. It's the apostasia, the departure. So that would signal to us that this is talking about a very specific thing. And interestingly, in God's providence, this last week in my Greek class, guess what we covered? The article and its usage. And one of the things we learned with the article is it's used by the writer to communicate to the audience something already established in their thinking, something they already know, right? You wouldn't say, go to the restaurant to someone who doesn't know what the restaurant you're talking about, right? So there's something, a pre-understanding intended with that word. And I think that's how Paul's using it. The departure happens first. Number four, noun apostasia can refer to physical departure. So within the, this word apostasia, it has that possibility, which means that it has the possibility here. And if context leads us that way, then it very much could be the right interpretation. Number five, the verb aphistemi can refer to physical departure. So again, we covered those in those verses. Number six, the extended context favors physical departure. Now, what, why might the extended context favor physical departure? What is he talking about in chapter 2? All of these things that need to happen before the coming of the Lord, right? And our gathering together to him. And so the extended context, but then the immediate context, verse 1, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you. So even the immediate context suggests that this should be taken as a, or favors a physical departure view. Number eight, 2 Thessalonians is a review. So he's not rehashing to them the doctrine of the rapture, the doctrine of the tribulation, the doctrine of the second coming. He is reviewing something that they already know. Number nine, early Bible translations favor physical departure. Number 10, physical departure is held by credible scholars. Now, that's an appeal to authority. That's a logical fallacy, but it is an argument, right? Good scholars, credible scholars take this view, so it's not within, uh, it's not out of bounds. Yeah. 
I just wondered if number nine might be going too far in that I understand they translated it, Departure, which you two right. favor. But do we know that it was translated Favorably. with this in mind, or was it just not being dogmatic about how right. it should be? And that's, I would say it doesn't necessarily favor it, but I, like you said, it does allow for it. And so I would, I would reword that personally, but that's what Andy Wood said, so um, we'll go with that. Um, here's a new argument that I just learned from my mentor, Jeremy Thomas, who also happens to be teaching through Second Thessalonians. And he said... In light of the evidence, especially verse 2, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So in light of false teachers using Paul's name to teach them falsely, he postulates that perhaps because, let me take a step back. One of the arguments is, okay, if he is talking about a physical departure, as you assume is the rapture, why not just communicate it more clearly? This is a doctrine in Scripture. It's called the perspicuity of Scripture is the technical word. It means that the writers were writing to be understood by the audience. So with that in mind, if Paul wanted to convey the rapture, why wouldn't he say harpazo, the Greek word that we get rapture from? So what would you say to that? The apostasia. The definite article means that they have an understanding. So the argument that Jeremy uses that in light of the false teachers, perhaps he's using, now I use this word carefully, code word. Now I'm not advocating the history channel code word, you know, here's the Bible code, but a code word that signals to them, this is what Paul taught us, the departure. Oh, that's the rapture. Or they would think harpazo. That's the harpazo. That's our catching away, our gathering together with him. So when Paul says the departure, the apostasia, I think that he's talking about the rapture. So any comments or questions at this point? That's my notes, the end of my notes. You and then you. In like the original text or whatever, like is it clear on departing from God or from the world or... Is no, it's just simply definite article, the departure. And that's how I think it should be translated. It should be the departure. Because then, to us, that should be, okay, what are you talking about then, Paul? Are you talking about a physical departure or a spiritual departure? And I think if you read that as is, I think as you read through the flow of Second Thessalonians, to me, there's really no other way of seeing it than a physical departure. Because doesn't that make sense? He's trying to comfort them. And he's saying, the day of the Lord, that's not going to come until this comes. So he's reminding them, which, oh, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians, didn't he do that? Hey, I want to comfort you that those who have died, they didn't miss the coming of the Lord. In fact, they're going to see him a half a second before you do. They're going to be resurrected, and then we, will be, who, we who are alive and remain will be caught up, harpazo, together to meet him. So I think he's reviewing for them, highlighting the eschatology lesson that he has already given them. Which another thing, by the way, how long was he in Thessalonica to teach them? Three weeks. weeks. So he had three weeks to teach these people. And I think he sought to teach the whole counsel of God. But apparently, I don't know if it was week one, two, or three, he was touching on eschatology. Something to ponder. So does that answer your question, though? 
Yeah, my Bible's just so much. Yeah, and that's that's why you got to be somewhat careful. I've talked, I think, before about there's philosophies to translations, and it's a spectrum. So you've got, and how do I do this for you? Well, one side is formal equivalent, and the other is dynamic equivalent. Now, equivalent. So the idea of formal equivalent is they're saying we're going to get out of the way as much as possible. We're going to take the words in Greek and we're going to put it into English. Obviously, we want this to be grammatically correct in English, so we'll smooth it out. But as much as possible, they maintain that philosophy of formal equivalence. Dynamic equivalence is, okay, let's try to help out our audience. We want to convey God's word. And so they'll take the meaning of the text and then translate the meaning to the uh, translation. But what's the problem with that? It's their interpreted meaning, right? So they're taking their interpretation and carrying it over, and that's what you have with the Living Bible and others. Yeah, the Living Bible, you need to understand this. It was written by one man. He wrote it for his daughters, and he never intended to Yeah. It's not... I mean, I can understand it a lot better. Than right, so. and... Well, we should, I think it has its uses, but then, yeah. Well, technically, but that's, but that's what it is. It's yeah. Yep. It's a commentary on the word of God. So when you look at that, that's a commentary on this. He was he wrote it for his daughters. Gotcha. With when his friends got a hold of it, and they said, hey, we got to publish it. So well, that's we could. Important to understand about it because then you're not getting a well, top three: New America, King James, New King James. You're not getting that actual literal interpretation. Well, and we have to be careful because we could do the same thing, and that's the. And I, I'm not, and I hope I don't step on toes. Um, although I suppose they need to be stepped on on this issue. I, I believe King James only people, it's a heresy. If you say that the King James Bible is inspired by God, then you are treading in dangerous waters because he didn't inspire the English translation. He, now you can argue that, okay, God is going to preserve his scripture and we have the preserved word in our English translation, but the inspired is only the original manuscripts. Do I feel comfortable saying we're inspired? I wouldn't even say it about manuscripts. Now you can argue that some manuscripts have greater whatever, but so, but anyways, and I'm also very somewhat gracious with guys like the living Bible or uh, Eugene Peterson with the message. And sometimes we poke fun at those guys, but they were just giving their kids a translation And I don't mind that. Now, I may disagree with your translation. I may disagree here and there. But their thought in their study and in their interpretation, that's the conclusion they came to. Okay. But then once it kind of goes out and people are reading it as if it's God's word, well, then you're getting into dangerous territory. I ran into that. I've been reading the Bible with Titus. And it's the NIRV. So it's the NIV, but I don't know the difference. Um, and I'm reading through Matthew with him. And so repent, it's talking about changing your behavior, basically. And I was like, oh, goodness. So uh, that's not what repent means. It may in context, but it simply means to change your mind. Any other comments or questions?
All right. Uh, yeah. Well, that's what we come here for. To help us understand all this. This is the reason why it's so important for us to be here because mm -hmm. we all don't get the opportunity to go to Bible school to right. learn that. Yeah. This is where we need your help to understand yeah. and get the correct interpretation. Yeah, and and to to that point, that's on talking about spiritual gifts, right? God gifts people with the gift of teaching to the church and those who have the, the training to do what I do and Dan does and Dave does and Bernie occasionally does. But are we infallible? Is my interpretation correct all the time? Wrong. Why are you shaking your heads? Yes. <laughs> Mine is. I don't know about... Dan and Dave and Bernie, but no, but, but you should be taking what we say. And that's interestingly enough, when you read through Acts, that's what the Thessalonians did, right? Hey, Paul said it, that settles it. What did the Bereans do? Thank you for sharing with us, Paul. We are going to study the scriptures to see if the things that you're saying are so. That's what we should be. Thank you, Pastor Jacob, so much for your eloquent speech and profound, thoughtful exposition of this text i'm going to study it a little bit more in detail with your wonderful thoughts in mind and see if it's so yeah so that 1500 well of both sides they did yes they thought martin luther was the man of lawlessness and the pope is the man of lawlessness from the protestant side so they, they were using their current events to interpret Scripture, uh, whereas if they would just read the passage in its context, guess what? They wouldn't be able to identify the man of lawlessness. Why? Because he won't be identified until we're gone. So, by the way, if you're watching videos that are talking about so-and-so is the Antichrist, which I think the latest is they're saying Macron is the Antichrist. Some are saying Zelensky. Could they be? Maybe. But we won't know, right? because we will be gone.